Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Spring is here. That means our local wildlife and plant life are waking up from their winter hibernation. It also means that many Nashvillians are waking up congested or with scratchy throats. The list of symptoms runs on, like noses. But in order to find some kind of relief, it's important to learn what causes allergies in the first place. Here's a hint. It may not be what you think. So today, we're bringing you a special Citizen Nashville, where experts will answer your questions about allergies in our town. But first, it's time for At Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I'm encouraging you to literally add us on Twitter at ThisIsNashville and on Instagram at ThisIsNashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at our past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. You know, it really feels like I'm sharing a studio with a celebrity now. Oh, look at you. You (laughs) saw my profile in the Nashville scene, I see. Well, yes, but I was actually talking about the write-up in Overdrive, a.k.a. the voice of the American trucker. Okay. As I'm sure our listeners remember, Friday's show was all about trucking, and as part of her research, show producer Magnolia McKay called Overdrive's chief editor— Todd Dills to get his insight into the trucking industry. Todd wasn't really part of our panel that day, but it's pretty clear that he was really listening. So in his summary of the show, he writes, quote, This is Nashville host Khalil Ecolona aimed to cut through stereotypes, both positive and negative, with a dose of reality, noting early on that though truckers may be, quote unquote, like Santa Claus in the minds of some, there's no doubt a whole lot more. There's no doubt that there's a whole lot more to this work, end quote. Todd also went on to write, quote, none of this will be new to our audience, of course, but here's kudos to the show for doing more than just the obvious with the topic. That's what we try to do. We try to do that every episode. Now, shout out to all of the truckers listening. Also, maybe this is a good time to mention that there's still time to grab a This Is Nashville trucker hat by giving to our spring fund drive. Mm -hmm. Mm. Anyway, you know, during that episode, listener Johnny shared some driving advice. He tweeted at us, quote, one of the biggest things is don't drive next to semi-trucks. And when traffic is merging, let at least one person in just leave a bigger gap in front of you. If everybody did that, it would greatly reduce traffic jams and make life a little better for everyone, end quote. Oh, that would be the dream. But, Mm -hmm. you know, just remember to share the road, y'all. Yes. But circling back to your celebrity status for a minute. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Our listener who goes by Fantasy Novel Research on Instagram said that we're better than fresh air. Mm. And over on Twitter, Daniel says that you're, quote, one of the best public radio interviewers since Terry Gross. So, you know, if you challenge Terry to host off, what would that be like? And... It would be quite the fun drive stunt. Oh, man. You guys are making me blush up in here in the (laughs) studio. Okay, so let's get back to some more serious topics. Of course. So during last Thursday's interview with historian and author Jefferson Cowie, um, I asked our listeners for their definition of freedom. Matthew answered with some song lyrics that will be familiar to many listeners. He tweeted at it saying, quote, 
I've usually gone with Chris Christofferson's definition. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Ooh, I like that. You know, my dad always said the most important thing about freedom is that you have to use it. Mm-hmm. I always remember that. Okay, so after that episode, Rachel tweeted us a question. Quote, did President Andrew Jackson send the marshals to Alabama before the Trail of Tears? End quote. Anna, were we able to find that answer? So Rachel's question refers to something that happened back in Barber County, Alabama. There was a nine-county area that was known as the Creek Nation. You know, to set aside for the Muscogee people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that was supposed to be protected under an agreement with Andrew Jackson. Well, these white settlers kept floating in and flooding uh, this area. And so Jackson, whom we think of as the Indian removal guy, and he was, and he was did some very, very, very bad things, in this particular case, actually sent federal marshals and federal troops in to remove white settlers from this land and give it back to the Creek people. So that was actually the voice of our guest, Jefferson Cowie. And after the show, producer Rose Gilbert actually got in touch with him for an answer to Rachel's question. And Jefferson's answer was, it's complicated. Mm. So the Trail of Tears took place over a period of several years after President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act in 1830. However... At that time, the Creek people had an agreement with Jackson. They would continue to own their land privately and individually instead of collectively as a tribe. In return, Jackson promised to protect them from intruders. So under this agreement, Jackson sent federal forces to Barber County in 1832 to kick out white settlers. However, when white settlers kept coming back and the Creek people eventually declared war... So this time, Jackson and the federal government actually sided with the white settlers and eventually forced the Creek people out of Barber County. Mm. So I hope this answers your question, Rachel. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Also on the topic of history, writer and former show guest Gloria Ballard shared her connection to the Rosenwald schools, which was the focus of yesterday's episode. Gloria tweeted us at us saying, quote, my grandfather was a school principal in Wilson County in the 1930s through the 1950s and also a Tuskegee graduate and carpenter. And she believes he was involved in building a Rosenwald school school in that county. I have Mr. Filer's book and appreciate the photos and stories, end quote. Thank you for sharing your family connection, Gloria. If our listeners want to know more about local history and how it continues to affect people living in Nashville today, I strongly recommend that you listen to WPLN Metro reporter Ambriel Crutchfield's special audio documentary, Alternate Endings. You will be able to find that full audio on our website. And actually, next Thursday, um, the station will be hosting a dinner and conversation with Ambriel, and you can find all the information about that. Also on WPLN.org. Yes, alternate endings. Trust me, you won't be upset that you listened. That is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Thanks for this roundup, Anna, and we'll see you soon. Of course. And our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram, and let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey. Let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn what is causing the allergies that affect so many people in our region. It might not be what you think. Do you have allergies? What is this season like for you? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. We've talked a lot here at WPLN News about how to serve you, our communities, better. So a few times a month, we're bringing you a special hour we're calling Citizen Nashville. Our goal is to answer your questions, round up resources for you, and make sure our leaders hear your needs loud and clear. Today, we're talking about allergies, the discomfort, the sneezing, coughing, itchiness, and overall fatigue that allergies bring. It can be maddening. I don't have it as bad as some people, but there are definitely times where I don't know if I have a cold or allergies have a stranglehold on my sinuses. For people with chronic health issues, health issues, allergies can be deadly. So what is causing all this irritation to our eyes, noses, and throats? Why does our region feel like allergy central? To help answer those questions, I'd like to introduce my first guest. Richard Hitt is the president of the Middle Tennessee chapter of Wild Ones, a nonprofit organization that promotes the use of native plants in the landscape. Richard, thanks for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a, pl- it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here with us. So, okay, Richard, so, you know, outside of everything, outside everything is turning green, flowers, they're starting to bloom and people with allergies sometimes want to put two and two together here. But from what I understand, flowers aren't quite the allergy triggers we've made them out to be, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, many aren't. In fact, uh, the flowers that cause the allergies are the flowers that use the wind to move their pollen to other flowers for cross-pollination. And worldwide, that's only about 12% of the flowering plants species that do that. And so... The 12% that do that are where the problem comes from, because to get wind to pollinate a flower, the plant has to produce a lot of uh, pollen. I mean, a lot of pollen, because they're not not directing it to another plant being carried by a bumblebee, for example. They're relying on the wind to randomly deliver the pollen to the other flower. Well, tell me why wind pollinators are so effective in creating and spreading this pollen. Um, The the, the amount of pollen that the flower has to produce to have a chance of having one of its pollen grains land on a flower of the same plant species somewhere else just requires a tremendous amount of pollen. It's a bit of a mystery why plants developed this system. The original flowering plants appear to have used insects for pollinators, and when you're using insects, the, the pollen is very targeted, and you don't need to produce much pollen, so those typically do not cause the allergy reactions. But somewhere around 65 million years ago, wind pollination developed as a viable option for the flowering plants. And like I said, it's it's a bit of a mystery why that happened. But uh, many of the trees use wind pollination, and a few of the flowering, a few of the herbaceous plants use wind pollination. And I think the poster child for the problematic uh, herbaceous plant would probably be ragweed. And so we have three species of ragweed here in Tennessee, and each each plant can produce over a billion grains of pollen in each season. So that's just a lot of pollen flying around there. Uh, you said a billion grains of pollen each season. Each individual plant can do this. That's what I. That's that's what the word is. Yeah, and um, the. Reaction to the ragweed pollen seems to be much worse in general. Uh, of course, it varies by individual, but it it is a, a very problematic plant. Now, it flowers in late summer and early uh, fall, 
And so when you have allergies in that time of year, you look around to see what might be causing it. And a lot of people think it might be goldenrod that causes their allergies because the goldenrods have a similar, well, they have they flower in that same period. But the goldenrods are insect pollinated. And so they're not causing the allergy reactions. It's the ragweed that does that. So don't... Uh, hold off on planting goldenrod just because they, you think they'll make you sneeze. They're one of the most uh, biodiversity supporting plants that you can have in your yard. Okay. So can you really quickly, can you describe what ragweed looks like for people who may not be familiar? Uh, yes. It has very distinctive leaves. They're what we call highly dissected. And that means they have these lobes and, and sinuses in them. Um, not to use the word sinus in a confusing way, because that's what we're talking about here in, in our human head. Yeah. Um, they, they are in the, both the goldenrod and the ragweed are in the uh, aster family. And so you think about what a daisy flower looks like. It's got the center disc and then the rays on the outside. The ragweed only has disc flowers. So it has none of those kind of ray petals that you would expect to see. And it's really not a very attractive plant. And one of the species can get to be about eight feet tall. So it's a very dominating plant when you see it in the landscape. Mm. Um, the goldenrod has yellow uh, ray flowers. And so it has more of a daisy, a daisy shape to the flower. It's very pretty yellow and has that arching uh, flower structure to it. So it's pretty easy to tell it apart from ragweed. But ragweed is basically a, not, a, not a particularly attractive plant to humans. It's just not a showy plant, and it looks like something you'd, be, you'd find growing in a ditch or something. Okay, so if anyone's out there sees a ragweed plant, make sure you get rid of it, because that's billions and of pollen don't, don't shake it. <laughs> don't shake it, yeah, cover your face and get rid of it. All right, so, you know, plant life causes allergies, yet there are also environmental factors that we need to consider. My next guest know this, knows this all too well. Dr. Eva Parker is a dermatologist and expert on the impact of climate change on allergies. She joins us now. Dr. Parker, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us. So, you know, when most people hear the word allergies, they're not they're not necessarily thinking about climate change in the same breath. What do these two have to do with each other? It's a great question. Aeroallergens, so what Richard was talking about, pollen in the air, play a very important role in what we call atopic diseases. And the three major ones that we think about in this category are seasonal allergies, asthma, and atopic eczema or atopic dermatitis. And because of global warming, we are seeing a significant shift in the frost cycle with the first frost of the fall occurring later and the last frost in the spring occurring sooner, effectively reducing the span of colder temperatures during the winter. This affects insects and plants, and specifically due to climate change, growing seasons are lasting longer, and the number of pollen-producing days is increasing, especially at more northern latitudes. Even more interesting and problematic is that increased atmospheric carbon dioxide levels have a fertilization effect on grasses and ragweed and other plant-based allergens, increasing their pollen production and really supercharging their antigenicity, which further drives these atopic diseases. Mm. And in fact, we know in children, sensitization to these allergies is associated with earlier development and severe of things like asthma and atopic eczema. 
Okay, so that's really horrifying news to anyone who has allergies out there who suffers from them. You know, but thinking about it, climate change is also caused by pollutants that we have in the atmosphere. How do those pollutants affect our allergies? Yeah, so there's a number of pollutants that are produced by burning fossil fuels. So uh, one of the big ones that we have to think about is particulate matter, especially teeny one, teeny particles that measure less than 2.5 microns. The problem is that those actually can enter our skin and embed deeply in our lungs. And more than that, particulate matter is pretty nasty stuff because it's sticky and lots of other things glom onto it. So in addition to the particles themselves, you also have other substances like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heavy metals. And when these are absorbed into our skin or our lungs, they trigger complex cascades of inflammation that help contribute to things like asthma and seasonal allergies and even atopic eczema. If you're just tuning in, this is Citizen Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil E. Colonna. We're talking this hour about allergies with Richard Hitt and Dr. Eva Parker. Send us your questions and tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, you know, our immune systems are supposed to protect us from sickness and disease, but allergies make us feel sick. Dr. Parker, can you tell us why allergens and pollutants how they affect our immune systems. It's a very complex topic, but with respect to allergies, I'll try to distill it down by explaining that the condition of atopy represents a predisposition to generate immune responses to diverse molecules that are present throughout the environment. And these molecules or allergens, if you will, can be derived from a variety of sources, including insects such as dust mites, pollen, mold, foods, and even substances in air pollution. And Allergen sensitization then can lead to the development of things like seasonal allergies and asthma and atopic eczema. But sensitization is complex and multifactorial with many things contributing to it. And, and we see sensitization rates varying between populations and people according to genetic factors, their geography, the allergens to which a population is exposed in their particular environment, as well as the presence of environmental exposures that may modify how we express our immune responses. Mm. Okay, so, you know, for some of us, the continued exposure to allergens is a reality. I'm curious as to what we can do or what we can plant that will help us out. Richard, is there anything that people can plant around the house that will help reduce allergies? In terms of planting, that's not going to, as far as I know, that's not going to have much of a benefit. If, for example, you did have one of the offenders like rad, ragweed, you would want probably want to get rid of that if you were sensitive to its pollen. But in terms of planting something that can counteract, um, I would just suggest that we plant as many native plants as we can, because that's what uh, what the insects and everybody co-evolved with in this in this area. And introducing uh, foreign plants is probably not going to help that much. But really, I don't think it's going to have much of an impact. What about in our home? I'm sure that it is is having an efficient ventilation system, making sure that you replace your air filter every 40 days. Is that something that can help out? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, I agree. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now, you know, I'm thinking about what we can do to treat ourselves. What what are our natural defenses against allergies and how we can boost them? Dr. Parker? Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, it's tough because um, allergens are something that are common and are in our environment. And so we often can't control the environmental exposure, but I can make a few suggestions for uh, folks. If you are highly allergic and really suffer from things like seasonal allergies and asthma, you can do desensitization through your local allergist, um, I'm sure most people have heard of um, the concept of allergy shots, and that's giving micro doses of allergens that you're allergic to. And the doses are so small that they don't produce an allergic reaction, but help you become desensitized. And so that's certainly available for people who have severe cases. For the rest of us, I think we can do practical things like checking air quality indices before we do outdoor activities. And if it's a heavy pollen day, you may want to consider consider not being outdoors, or if you do have to be outdoors, you can wear an N95 mask, which may help prevent inhaling much of the pollen that's in the air. And in addition for your skin, just covering up with long sleeve shirts and pants can help protect uh, pollen from uh, and pollution from entering the skin. Now, Richard, tell me, do you suffer from allergies? Well, that's interesting. Um, I didn't suffer for allergies most of my life, but I guess being here in the allergy capital, it's uh, caught up with me. So, hmm. yes, I've had past couple of weeks, I've had a rough time with with some allergic reactions, but I'm feeling better now. What do you do to protect yourself? Well, as you mentioned in the intro, I have trouble deciding if I have a cold or if it's going into a sinus infection or if it's an allergy re reaction. And so I try to keep... Um, Keep on top of that, and I will use uh, an antihistamine, uh, a non-drowsy antihistamine, as I think I need. And then I'll also try to make sure that uh, my nose is able to drain properly so that nothing is getting uh, stopped up in there. And take things like guaifenesin, which is a mucus thinner, and things like that. But yeah, it's a battle I, I have uh, occasionally, whereas I, I used to never... Have, have the problem. I did get sinus infections occasionally, but it was never based on allergies as far as I could tell. I wonder if what, what, what recommendations you have for other people out there who, you know, like you didn't have allergies, moved here to middle Tennessee and suddenly they're, they're haunted by them. Oh, well, luckily, um, my cases are fairly mild, but um, I do use uh, antihistamines as needed. Um, I use guaifenesin as needed, which I think is uh, mucinex, as would be the over-the-counter name. And I just try to make sure that my nose isn't or isn't prevented from being able to drain easily, because that's when I can get tipped over into a sinus infection. Uh, some people also use neti pots where they get a saline solution and rinse their nose out. Um, I've done that as well. Um, so a lot of over-the-counter things you can do before you have to, uh, you know, take more serious action. The importance is to maintain your practice. I want to thank my guest, Richard Hitt. He is the president of the Middle Tennessee chapter of Wild Ones. Richard, thanks again for being with us, and thanks for this great information. Thank you so much. Dr. Eva Parker will stick with us through the break. 
When we come back, we'll have experts answer your questions about allergies. Still time to send yours in, so tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Citizen Nashville. We're talking to this hour about allergies and what seems to be a never-ending allergy season here in our region. Before the break, we learned about what is causing some of those allergic reactions. Now it's time to answer some of your questions about allergies and get some suggestions on how and where you can find relief. For that, I'd like to introduce my next guest, Dr. Rikesh K. Chandra is chief of the Division of Nasal and Sinus Disorders in the Bill Wilkerson Center, Wilkerson Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and part of their Asthma, Sinus, and Allergy Program. Dr. Rick, thanks for being with us today and welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay, so I know our, our listeners really appreciate you being here. You know, all right, let's get started with some of our listeners. Marissa Shapiro left us this message with this question about allergy season, or should I say allergy seasons? Hey, this is Nashville. This is Marissa, longtime listener, first-time caller. Okay, I've heard about fall allergies being a new addition to allergy season. So there's spring and fall or winter. I don't even know. How many allergy seasons are there? What's different about them? And how do I feel good and unaffected in each individual season? Thanks. <laughs> All right, Dr. Rick, let's start with the first part of that question. How many allergy seasons are there? So th th these questions actually relate a lot to what we've talked about before. Uh, and we think of, you can have allergies all year round, really, depending on what the triggers are. But if we're focusing more on uh, what is in the environment, uh, there's usually a, a spring, a summer, and a fall. Um, and even though these seasons in reality overlap with each other, the the ear earlier uh, yearly spring type ones are, are trees. And then that gives way to grasses. And then in the fall, it's, it's mostly ragweed. Um, the times that these start and stop aren't rigid. And clearly when there's still tree pollen out, then the, the grass will start to also pollinate. So there'll be times when someone who's sensitive to both will have a lot of trouble. Now, Dr. Eva Parker is still with us. Dr. Parker, you talked about climate change affecting the seasons in the previous segment, but tell us, what is the worst season for pollinators out there? I think historically spring has probably always been the worst, but Dr. Chandra is right. It depends on what you're allergic to. So if your primary trigger is ragweed, fall may be worse for you. Mm. It's now, probably very individualistic. Okay. Everybody's got to unfortunately put themselves to the test during these seasons. Now, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Rick, is there anything you recommend to help folks stay unaffected? Well, the environmental control is important. And another thing which we didn't really talk about is that uh, in, in the South, that uh, because of the lack of a, a prolonged uh, freeze cycle, as was discussed, we also have higher ambient mold levels um, in the air and soil. And so people who are impacted by that 
not only need to think of the pharmacotherapy and, and typical avoidance measures, but also need to uh, avoid damp areas. Okay, talk to us a little bit more about molds. What about like molds in someone's home? How can someone tell if their home has a mold problem? Well, it, it, there's a lot about mold, which is uh, maybe overstated sometimes because we all breathe in mold all the time. And uh, what's probably the prevailing issue is is the how susceptible the patient is. Now, clearly, if, if somebody is uh, allergic to mold, then being in environments where they're where you see mold, for example, like if there's a damp basement with the the black coloring that that none of us want to see in our homes, um, then that needs to be mitigated, um, and it can usually be done by by dehumidification. Okay, now I've heard that drinking lots of water helps to mitigate effects of allergies. Hydration is good for us, but is there any scientific evidence that being well hydrated helps with allergies, Doctor Parker? I'm not aware of that, but maybe Dr. Chandra knows. So in a theoretical way, there is, because um, a lot of what happens, we're breathing these particles, whether they be pollens or mold spores all the time, and they stick to the mucus in our noses. And then that mucus is being constantly transported into our throats all day long, and we swallow it. And that's how you're you're eradicating or, or lessening the particulate matter in the air so that by the time it gets to your lungs, it's free of that stuff. Um, and what's important for that clearance, that mucus clearance, is to have mucus that is of a, a lower viscosity. And so if someone's dehydrated, then their mucus is going to get much more viscous and thick and be less uh, apt to that spontaneous um, steady state clearance. So if you look at the opposite of that, if somebody's well hydrated, then it uh, thins the mucus and makes it more easily cleared. Uh, that drug that was brought up before, guafenicin, in fact, its mechanism of action is to pull water into the mucus. And so people take that drug and uh, it's important that if you do, then you need to drink it with plenty of water because without the water, it, it can't exert its effect. All right. Everybody out there, drink more water. Our producer's doing that right now in the control room. We got a tweet at This Is Nashville from James Guthrie. It says, quote, I'd love to hear the experts take on the link between seasonal allergies and inflammation, especially for people who suffer from issues like brucitis, arthritis, gout, and even depressive symptoms. Or am I the only one who gets achy and a little bit blue in the spring? End quote. Dr. Rick, care to answer? So that's an interesting question because there's a lot of studies looking at the links between many of these inflammatory diseases. And it's probably not that allergies cause arthritis, for example, but that people who are prone to inflammation of one sort may also be prone to other forms of, of inflammation. Uh, depression and anxiety are, are interesting because all of these chronic diseases that uh, affect patients' day-to-day -day lives and that are kind of unremitting or last you know, many, many months out of the year do cause anxiety and depression. And whether it's a psychologic thing or an inflammatory link, we don't know. Um, that That's really not been worked out mm. clearly yet. Mm -hmm. All right. We have another question from listener Joan Skaia. I'm wondering if there's any foods you can eat to help your gut microbiome to make you more resilient to pollen and ragweed, et cetera, since I understand allergies are a form of inflammation in your system. Thank you. Dr. Parker? Yeah, we get questions all the time about links between skin disease, especially inflammatory skin disease and diet. 
and the research has not really made a connection. So there's not specific foods that can be consumed to necessarily prevent atopic dermatitis. There are some foods that may be linked, but again, food allergies are very individualistic and not something that can be generalized across the population. All right. Now, staying in that vein of how food allergies and allergies interact, we have a question from Stephen Baggett. Let's, uh, let's check it out. I have always heard that eating locally produced honey helps with allergies. Is there any science behind that? And if science does back that up, are there any local honey farmers in Nashville? Now, for the second half of that question, we're actually hosting an episode all about pollinators next week, which will include some local beekeepers. But first, Dr. Rick, is there any science behind the, the idea that local honey helps with allergies? So I don't know so much about local honey, to be honest, but the, uh, there are things that look at um, manuka honey um, in um, treatment of inflammation. And there there are uh, phytopharmaceuticals, which uh, do have effects on um, whether it's antioxidant properties, things like that, that, that definitely have uh, uh, some impact on inflammation. Um, that's been studied for chronic sinusitis, which is an overlapping but different disease. Uh, so exactly what it is for allergic rhinitis is it, it, not specifically worked out. Uh, unfortunately, though, I don't I don't know much about local honey growers. Hey, it doesn't help. Doesn't hurt to uh, try some honey. This was whatever works, right? Now you know I think where people live is an important factor of all this, especially when we're talking about pollutants in the environment. Dr. Parker, how does environmental justice or the lack thereof factor into public health? It's a really important question. So thank you for broaching that subject. I think it's really important to understand that where you live impacts your health greatly. And I would include climate change as an underrecognized social determinant of health. And I think this probably comes in more to play when we think about how air pollution impacts the skin and the respiratory system more so than pollen per se. But just to give a little bit of historical background for the audience, in the 1930s, the government began to refinance home mortgages that were in default and to assess credit worthiness these residential security maps were created and color-coded by race. This became known as redlining because the majority of Black neighborhoods were marked in red and designated as hazardous. And quite honestly, this was a thinly veiled segregationist practice to keep Blacks in poorer and, and more resource-deficient neighborhoods and to devalue property in those areas. And unfortunately, the effects of redlining endure today as the majority of redlined neighborhoods are currently of low to moderate income and are communities of color. So then what does that have to do? What does that sort of institutional racism have to do with climate change? Well, fast forward now, 90 years later, we see that these neighborhoods are often geographically near industrial sites and toxic waste dumps and highways with increased exposure to high levels of air pollution. These neighborhoods also have fewer trees and more concrete and are urban heat islands. And consequently, these neighborhoods are disproportionately affected by heat 
and air pollution. And it's important to understand that the pressures applied by climate change amplify what we refer to as multidimensional disparities, enhance an individual's vulnerability to climate change and accentuate the, the health impacts of heat and pollution. And it and it perpetuates this vicious, vicious cycle of inequity. Well, okay, we only have about a minute and a half left, but answer this for me. What can folks who live in a heat island or next to the freeway, what can they do to protect themselves and loved ones? Plant more trees. Okay, okay. Now, now, Dr. Rick, really quick, what do you want people to know about allergy season and how? what are the best ways to approach it? Well, I think first of all is figure out what your triggers are, and uh, that can be done pretty simply, either uh, by blood testing or by uh, uh, skin prick testing, which is just done in an allergist's office. Um, and then uh, certain medications, in addition to what were previously discussed, uh, include intranasal corticosteroids. You see them advertised as Flonase and Nasacort, things like that. A lot of those are available over the counter now. And to, to start that about two weeks before the season that you get a trigger. And, and those medications need to be used on a regular basis during the season. It's not something you can just use, you know, a, a puff here and a puff there. They're, they're nasal sprays. Uh, but the um, in, environmental control also that um, the, those uh, neti pots and nasal sinus irrigators are also there's a lot of different uh, commercially available ones. Those are useful too, because it's, it, you're washing all that particulate matter out of the nose, that particulate matter wants to stick in there. And so doing that is kind of thought of as a form of environmental control. Uh, from a therapeutic um, uh, intervention standpoint, th those, those are the main things along with what was discussed previously, antihistamines and so forth. Um, but then, you know, it sounds like something trivial, but the avoidance is really the the key mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, and sometimes that's easier said than done, but, yeah. uh, you know, I kind of started with the pharmacologic options and worked backwards, but the, um, in medical practice, you know, we usually start with things that are non-invasive and have, um, all right, yes, we're going to have we're going to have to end it right there. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Rikesh K. Chandra, chief of the Division of Nasal and Sinal Dis Sinus Disorders at the Bill Wilkerson Center at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He was joined by Dr. Eva Parker, dermatologist and expert on the effects of climate change and allergies. I want to thank you both for being here and thank you for your help. If you suffer from allergies, let's hope you get help because we know the people who make Kleenex and tissues are very happy this time of year. We want to thank you, everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we're bringing you a special rebroadcast of our interview with author and New York Times columnist Margaret Rankle. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Our producers are Steve Farouche, Rose Gilbert, Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Special thanks to Kendra Abkowitz and Marjorie Hunter. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.